How Bureaucrats Deal with Political Chaos Above, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. With the prospect of a second emboldened Trump administration on offer, the administrative state is under attack. How well did the bureaucracy deal with the first Trump administration? Was there really a resistance in a quote-unquote deep state? And how much are career civil servants really affected by chaos and turnover in the political class that sit above them? This week, I talked to Jamie Kaczynskis of Hamilton College about her American Journal of Sociology article with Yvonne Zeiland, Walking the Moral Tightrope. She finds limited and ineffectual resistance of administrators during the Trump administration, even among those alarmed by Trump's actions, with employees still highly committed to the goals of their agencies. I also talked to Amanda Rutherford of Indiana about her governance article with Taha Hamadudin, Vacancies Among Appointees in U.S. Federal Agencies. She finds that upper-level bureaucrats actually report higher satisfaction when they face political vacancies and they are less likely to want to leave. That suggests chaos at the top may not lead to wholesale agency degradation. So perhaps we should not expect agency dissemination, but we also can't expect much resistance. I ask both about possible Schedule F reforms to further politicize the bureaucracy and whether it might be different this time. Let's start with my interview with Kaczynskis, which uses interviews to explore the resistance, or lack thereof, inside the Trump administration. So what were the biggest uh, findings and takeaways from your new article, Walking the Moral Tightrope? Thanks for asking and for your interest in the study. And so I think the first takeaway for me was that you have to understand career civil servants' experiences working within this really complicated institution. Um, and that, you know, I think a lot of lay people look at morality and they think, oh, this is simple. Like, do you do what's right or do you do what's wrong? Um, and philosophers will like hearken to the trolley problem of like, here's the situation, you know, how do you decide what to do and what the best thing and the right thing to do is. Um, but what I found that in the state is that it's not so simple. Um, and so I've been reading a lot of Dwight Waldo. So Dwight Waldo was a career civil servant um, and also a public administration scholar, actually down the road from me. Um, he was at the Maxwell School in Syracuse. Um, and so he actually lays out all these different ethical obligations that career civil servants aspire to uphold. And so, you know, you start with the Constitution. You want to uphold the Constitution. You want to uphold law. You want to be loyal to your nation or your country. Uh, in the U.S., we want to support democracy. Um, and then you've got, you know, agency missions, agency norms. You've got the, the profession that you were trained under. So if you are a scientist or if you are a lawyer, it's loyalty to those, like doing what's right by those professions. Um, and then you kind of get the bigger ones that might not be tied directly to the country, but they also might be. So like loyalty to a god, loyalty to serving the world, um, putting the public welfare, you know, first. Um, and then you've got, you know, your friends, yourself, all these different things. And so when you think about working for the state, it's always complicated, not just in the Trump administration. Um, and so but under the Trump administration, it was particularly, I think, challenging for the career civil servants, because this was a president who um, hoped for, you know, higher standards of loyalty to him and to his administration, his appointees um, than other presidents. And you could see that that came, you know over and above other things that career civil servants hold dear to them, you know, like following kind of this, you know, bureaucratic process in making decisions, um, the constitution, they swear an oath to uphold the constitution. Um, so, you know, supporting law. So all of these different things 
um, it was challenging to do all of it for career civil servants. And so I saw they were in all of these different kinds of binds and they try to, what I say, like um, walk like a moral tightrope between these different ethical obligations. And it was really hard. For them. So let's talk about the logistics of what you actually uh, did. Um, you interviewed 77 people. Um, it seems like some of them you interviewed more than once. Um, and in total, there were th three different waves of interviews. So what, what how did you set this up? Um, and, um, and what was kind of the structure of your conversation? Yeah, so uh, it was hard to get people to talk to me. So I'll start there. I learned that very quickly. Um, so in 2017, when I started thinking about this project, I was wondering, like, who, who might resist this administration? And there was all these protests that were happening on the mall. And so I had two teams of researchers that went to the science march and the climate change march and gave out surveys. And um, my two teams collected 391 surveys. And out of those 391 surveys, only 12 people said, I am a, a federal civil servant and I am willing to talk to you in an interview. And of those 12 people, only seven actually talked to me. <laughs> so that was a sign. And like, I know, especially since where a lot of people I talked to a considerable amount did attend protests at some point during the administration. So especially at the science march and the climate march, I, I think there probably were, you know, more civil servants there. Um, but I realized that people were, are not going to automatically trust me. And so what I did next, and I started this project with Avon um, Zylan, who's a political sociologist and a lawyer. She was in my department at the time. And so we worked our networks. And so, you know, we talked to people about the study. Um, we networked. So she's being a lawyer. We networked with some of her legal networks. Um, we, we met with um, professors of public administration and universities around DC who then connected us with their alumni. And so here we were getting a wider, you know, sample of people. So people who weren't necessarily, you know, more likely to resist the administration, but people just working in different executive and independent agencies under the Trump administration. And then from there, we snowball sampled more. And then I picked up some more people from like a conference I went to or a Facebook posting or a couple other things. But um, yeah, for the most part, those were the ways that we connected with, with the people. And so I interviewed 66 career civil servants and contractors who are working in executive and independent agencies. Um, I did have higher clusters in some of the most politicized and contentious agencies like the EPA um, or HHS or the State Department. Um, I also, to get a baseline, I spoke with 11 former employees who'd worked in particularly contested areas of the government in the past. So people who'd worked at, you know, the EPA under Ann Gorsuch's leadership or DOJ in the Civil Rights Division under um, George W. Bush's administration. So I had a sense of like, how did this play out under other administrations? And then I could compare it to the Trump administration. So, yeah, the, the, there is... Um... You know, there is something that we should kind of expect when a new uh, president goes in, especially one that is not very aligned uh, with the bureaucracy in general or with a mostly Democratic leaning uh, officials and some agencies. Um, so some of this we might have expected under any new Republican administration. Um, so how much was unique to the Trump administration and how much do you think it was due to Trump just being an inexperienced politico and bringing in inexperienced people versus having an agenda that they were opposed to versus some kind of authoritarian impulse that they recognized. Yeah, so that's a great question. Actually, I didn't mention. So the people I talked to also, when I asked them, they said politically they identified as ranging from being centrist to 
Democrats, some being reluctant Democrats. So I didn't speak to Republicans. They didn't trust me enough to speak to me as an academic. And so I think that's also important is I was speaking to people, you know, who veered onto the left um, or more progressive side of the political spectrum. Um, So this is where it's tricky as a sociologist. So I'm I was basically trying to watch what was happening um, through my interviews and their experiences um, over the course of the administration. I I did three waves of data. So I talked to um, some people, about 40 people in 2017. Um, over 60 people in 2018. And then I did a last wave of people in the most um, dynamic parts of the government in 2019 to 20. And that wave was cut a little short from from COVID. Um, But yeah, so how do you parse out like what is a specific Trump phenomenon and what is an experience or like the chaos that people are reporting? Um, And so what I did was I went through, I called through the interviews that I did and I was basically as social scientists do, like coding the data and trying to get a sense of what are the conditions that people are reporting working under. And so from there, I could get a sense of in the most politicized locations in the government, um, the people who are feeling really, really stressed about working there, like what were they experiencing? And so some of it tied back to Trump appointees leadership styles. And so there, um, and I've actually, I'm working on a book on the project, um, and the book's called The Loyalty Trap. And so I, you know, kind of go through what are the conditions of the people that experience these loyalty traps. Um, and so um, the Trump appointees um, and the places that these people were working, um, they tended to contradict professional or institutional values, norms, and structures. They tended to exhibit suspicion towards employees, career employees. Um, there, um, people I talked to reported political appointees threatening their use of voice or even asking questions through retaliatory behaviors like firing, demotion, or isolating them. Um, the people I talked to reported um, some Trump appointees having unusually high expectations of loyalty to the president and the administration. And they also reported political leadership excising them from decision-making processes and failing to listen to the expert advice. And so um, some political scientists might say, oh, this sounds kind of familiar over the last couple of decades. Um, It's kind of a classic administrative presidency playbook. Um, So that's where, but I think with Trump, the expectations of loyalty to the president and to some of the appointees was higher than people reported experiencing under other administrations, especially more recent ones. Um, But then you add in the chaos. (laughs) And so the chaos, um, it's unclear exactly where some of the chaos is coming from. Um, So the chaos they reported being tied to fractured appointed leadership. So infighting between different appointees or Trump influencers and not knowing what to do when it wasn't clear like where they should be headed or whether some some project manager said, I don't know whether I can even support publicly my own project work because like one, you know, member of the Trump family likes it and this other appointee doesn't like it. So like, what do you do? Like, do I just not talk about my work publicly? Maybe, <laughs> you know? So they, they got in these kinds of binds. Um, I heard a lot of people reporting um, like unclear communication from the top throughout the organization, throughout the different levels of the organization. And then I had a good number of people reporting incidents of sheer incompetence. Um, So things like these appointees I'm working under don't understand like some of the basic things of how to do work in this area of the government. Um, Or some of it was just um, like even simple things. So like reports, instead of having numbers in chronological order, having like haphazard numbers that weren't 
checked. Um, so like a range of different examples of incompetence. But what I saw for the people working under the Trump administration in the most politicized areas was like a swirling of all these things. And so it, they're kind of entangled in their experiences. So what examples were there of uh, employees actually uh, practicing resistance um, and how effective were they? So I I talk in, in the paper and a little bit in the book, too, about a range of different forms of resistance. And so uh, step one is kind of, you, know, you start theoretically as a scholar with the question of like, what's resistance anyway? And scholars will say, okay, well, it's resistance if it's pushing back against authority or if there's like an intention or a behavior that's doing that. Um, and so that's tricky with the government. Um, because there's there's often a baseline of friction between appointees and government civil servants who've been doing their work, you know, for extended periods of time. And an administration comes in, they want to change things. Um, so the question is, like, when is it resistance that's kind of beyond normal? Um, and that's kind of hard to discern. But if if you look, there's there's a couple different ways that people were describing deliberate, you know, resistance with an intent to resist. Um, so one common way was framing. Um, so instead of like they weren't some people reported not being able to use the word climate change anymore. So they might say, like, I'm going to, you know, do some um, environmental mitigation work. Right. Or, or make up some other kind of way of describing I'm going to do community remediation or, you know, something else that didn't have that word that the appointees might just reject. Um, so that was one way that people did it. Um, but then other people would tell me, oh, we do that with every administration shift. And so that also blurred into some normal practices that career civil servants reported doing without, you know, a spirit of resistance. Um, so other things um, in the scholarship, there's there's, you know, documentation of people doing slow walking or neglect. And people will tell you, oh, this is one thing career civil servants can do. But I actually found that not many people reported doing that because that cut against their professional culture of serving the government. So that struck me as rare. Um, one way they said they might resist would be, you know, backroom conversations. Um, and that might even just be like workplace gossip. So that doesn't have a lot of teeth. Uh, it didn't seem to have a lot of teeth uh, or an impact. Um, another thing people reported was just documenting when they saw um, like appointees doing things they thought was wrong or deviant. Um, and so they thought that felt like resistance because they thought the appointees wouldn't want them to do it. Um, and then I guess moving more into overt resistance or what I come to call moral courage in the book, that was a very, very small group of people. And I'm thinking like five people, you know, so not very many people. This wasn't common. Um, but so one example that I talk about in the paper was someone who, um, when they felt protected by an appointee, a Republican appointee, several levels above them, they felt more comfortable as a lawyer speaking up and saying, you know, what this other appointee wants is actually illegal um, or not signing a document that had been edited um, to say the opposite of of what she had wanted to say. So those kinds of behaviors where it was like palpable to appointees that this person was in disagreement with them. And this person actually got in some like shouting matches with appointees. Um, so that was very, very unusual. Um, the other example I have that I talk about in the paper and also in the book I'm writing is um, how in a vacuum of power, 
sometimes career civil servants could um, try to keep doing their job as they saw fit in the absence of leadership, even if they thought it cut against the direction they thought the appointees would have wanted them to go. Um, and so um, I profiled someone who, who did that. But then as soon as an appointee came in to a leadership position over him, you could see him kind of cutting back and other people in his um, work group also kind of what he said was aligning um, with the appointee. So so in terms of the people who actually protested, like what I saw was that like there's these windows in which they felt they might be efficacious or they had enough protection to be able to speak up for what they thought was right, um, which often aligned with work they'd done in the past on, in the government. Um, but then, you know, that window could close if they didn't feel safe. So people in the Trump administration talked about uh, there being a deep state that was working at cross purposes from them. Um, and some of it does cross over a bit with uh, your your interests. Um, I think they were talking mostly about the national security arena. So I don't know if you found anything uh, different there, but I guess how different is what you found from this um, popular suspicion that conservatives have that, you know, somewhere in the lower levels of the bureaucracy, there are people working against their agenda. So this is a complicated question. So what is the deep state? Um, so I'm going to defer. So Stanford International Studies scholar Francis Fukuyama talks about the history of the deep state um, as being tied to countries like Egypt and Turkey, um, where, where the military and security agencies um, try to secretly manipulate state functioning. Um, and then so he goes on to argue that the U.S. is, by contrast, very transparent, um, not only with um, weak democracies, but also with other liberal democracies. Um, he also argues that the U.S., readily can be controlled by elected political leaders. Um, and so political scientists are suggesting that, you know, th these claims of a deep state are really, you know, not using the meaning that political scientists would use of what a deep state is, but they're using it to raise fears and apprehensions among the American public. Um, I think that there also could be a more popular understanding that Trump supporters are likely to use that the U.S. is like a deep state in the fact that it's like a really complicated state with a lot of layers and a lot of employees that don't turn over. And so that perception is accurate. But it's also important to mention, and I think Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Wrist, does a really good job of showing this, that the contemporary U.S. government is dealing with a lot of really complicated social problems. And, you know, so people at NOAA are predicting the weather to protect Americans from natural disasters. And you've got nuclear waste and you want scientists or people who have scientific knowledge to deal with some of these complex problems. Um, and I think that um, a lot of Americans actually don't understand the range of problems, and the depth of problems that the state deals with to protect Americans. Um, but yeah, so like, were the people that I was talking to um, operating as a deep state? Um, so I think, and it's not just me, I've had other people like read my data or my, my analyses to kind of check it before it goes public, just to make sure I'm not being biased. And what people have consistently said, even more strongly than I've said when they've read the accounts, 
um, or my accounts of the accounts, is that it's striking that these government workers I talk to like really care about trying to do the right thing and keep the state stable and maintain continuity across administrations and do their job as best they can, as best they see fit, given their professional knowledge and work experience. And so I can't say that enough because I think that's the story that keeps kind of falling by the wayside. It's not like sexy for sound bites for the media. Um, career civil servants really care about their jobs and they work really hard and they're really smart. <laughs> um, people aren't saying that enough. And I think it's like kind of trite, but that was one of the major findings of my study. Um, and so it's not like they're like, you know, maliciously hiding things. And actually one, I forget if this quote was in the article you read, but it's in the book where one career civil servant said, you know, like if I wanted to leak something, I just leak it. I wouldn't be telling you that you should correct course on this because you're doing something wrong that you shouldn't be doing. Um, so that, you know, there were cases where I think also the definition of leaking was changing in the government where some appointees were calling leaking like, Things that, you know, were publicly available information that NGOs had picked up from postings on government websites and other kinds of things. And what other um, the people I talked to also suggested was that some of the leaking was coming from appointees themselves, um, which you could trace through the meetings and who was in the meetings and things like that. So at the end of the the Trump administration, they uh, tried to implement um, a Schedule F reform uh, that moved a lot of people uh, to be political appointees or um, appointed by political appointees. Um, and they uh, have even more elaborate plans to do so uh, should uh, Trump or another Republican uh, be elected um, next year. We should expect them to be kind of ready to go in uh, this effort to, to change the um, the complexion of the bureaucracy um, and making it more uh, susceptible to presidential influence. So, so they appear to think that something did go <laughs> wrong uh, with the bureaucracy following their uh, their goals um, in the, in the first Trump administration. What do you, what do you think that they are trying to to do with this? Um, thank you for bringing this up. I think this is an issue everyone should be talking about. It's like normally. Um, Americans don't really talk about the state during elections, but I think because of Schedule F, we should be. Um, so to give a little background on what I know about it, um, so Napa hosted a forum talking about this on June 29th, um, and James Shirk, who is the director of the Center of American Freedom at the American First Policy Institute, and he was a special assistant to the president in the Trump administration, and Michael Riggis, who was the, um, he's the director of the American Leadership Initiative at the America First Policy Institute, and he was the acting director of the U.S. Office of Personal Management in the Trump administration. Um, they both spoke at this forum, and so I learned a little bit about how they were seeing the government through what they shared. And um, what James Shirk said was, he's making this argument that the Constitution vests power in the president elected by the people. And he believes that federal employees um, were resisting the president's initiatives. Um, and he thinks that if they don't serve the president, they should be fired. It, it should be more easy to fire them. And then, um, so Rigas was saying that he just wants to remove people who can't or won't improve at their jobs. Um, and so they're kind of offering these different perspectives. Um, listening to them, 
what struck me was they're glossing over all of the experiences that people shared with me working under um, Trump appointees, especially in some of the parts of the government that weren't functioning very well and that were most politicized. Um, and so I think that they're suggesting there's far more resistance by career civil servants than um, I witnessed among the people that I talked to. And you'd expect more resistance among the people I talked to because I went to protests to try to get them to talk to me. And I talked to, you know, Democrats and I talked to centrists. I didn't talk to Republicans. So you'd think like if the protest was happening, I'd be capturing it in my study. Um, and as I said, even the most you know, resistant, a quote unquote, or like morally courageous, cutting against the administration's kind of bent. Um, they also all reported working with Trump appointees to support a good number of their different initiatives. Um, so it wasn't like there were people who just, you know, were were really just protesting within the government. I didn't see that. Um, I worry that without civil service protections, that some of these, you know, highly trained and knowledgeable people who've worked with like chemicals in the government, you know, for decades, <laughs> um, some of them, you know, it might be more possible to fire some of these people. Um, so some of their early estimates, um, so OMB was the first agency to report how many people might qualify under Schedule F, and it was like 88%. Um, so we're talking like, you know, not only the people doing policy, but like lawyers, like basically the people I talked to could be more easily fired under a Schedule F policy um, if it were reinstated. Um, and so after talking to these people about, you know, in, in interviews, I'd ask, like, how did you get into government service? What's your work history? Tell me about the work you do every day. And um, so after learning a lot about these people's lives and the work they do and how they approach it, um, I would be very concerned if these very talented and skilled and knowledgeable people um, were basically could be more easily fired and then loyalists would basically replace them. And so that I did see that starting to happen under the Trump administration through the experiences and eyes of the people I talked to. So people like in across some different agencies reported that, you know, like one person actually said, you know, the people were hiring at my agency, they wouldn't be in the top 3000 list of any other agency, Republican or, or any other administration, um, Democrat or Republican. Um, so they're talking about people being hired from like Liberty University. So like not Yale or Harvard or, um, you know, Johns Hopkins or like the other places around DC. Um, so people within the agencies didn't think they were getting the cream of the crop. Um, and actually, um, so Andrew Kloster of the American Moment, who is a former deputy general counsel for the Office of Personnel Management, has said um, in like who they're who American Moment is trying to recruit for the next Republican administration. Um, he says, I think the first thing you need to hire for is loyalty. The funny thing is you can learn policy, but you can't learn loyalty. Um, so that's a pretty powerful quote. So um, and some context for that, too. I know we've talked a lot about loyalty over the last you know, time I've been talking to you. But um, early on when I started this project, I was in a writing group with a scholar from Turkey, Yamar Karakaya, who is now at Yale, and Chen Yu Wang, who is a, a Chinese scholar at Hamilton. And um, early on, 
it was like very clear to me, like the American government is very different from the Turkish government or the Chinese government. And one of the things that we distinguished in like talking about my project was that one of the big differences is that in the American government, like as we knew it, people were hired based on like meritocratic, you know, backgrounds and skills and expertise and credentials. Um, whereas what they reported seeing in Turkey and China more was like, government bureaucrats being fired and more loyal people being hired in their stead. And so if we start doing that in our government, if we weaken the civil servant protections and replace the people who've long been working in these different positions, you know, with people that are just loyal to the president, then like that's lurching us, I think, towards autocracy. And that that worries me greatly. <laughs> So how real is the, is that threat? Um, some people may um, look at the first Trump administration and say, uh, you know, we have already been through it. Uh, if Trump is elected again, uh, we will we will make our way uh, through, just like the bureaucrats uh, in your study. Um, but others might say, wow, we really ignored the warning, and there doesn't seem to be much of a uh, real um, check on authoritarian impulses uh, if the next. Uh, Trump administration wants to to move us in a more authoritarian uh, direction. Uh, the bureaucrats uh, will go along. What do you think? As as the people I talked to reported, and also as Michael Lewis's book reports, uh, the transition to the Trump administration did not go well. So the initial you know planned transition teams they were basically stopped, and then new ones were brought on. So the transition took longer um, to get the Trump teams in place. So that's lost time for Trump to accomplish, you know, the things he wanted to accomplish. Step one. Um, step two, and this is something that you'll hear like Trump administration officials and um, perhaps members to be of a potential future generation or future administration saying is that um, they picked some Republicans who'd served in prior administrations. They picked some people who were more moderate or not as loyal as, you know, they would have hoped or they hope for the next administration. So, you know, you had some leaders like Millet or Comey or people who um, they've come out against since um, who were trying to, I think, dig into this ethical um, landscape and obligations of the state like career civil servants. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so I think that and you could actually you could see warning signs, warning bells coming from historians and political scientists about the Trump administration, even in 2017 and 18. And so there's like best-selling books like Levitsky and Zabla, like how democracies die that, you know, they're warning the American public that this is a risk. But even as a sociologist, like just starting to study this, I, you know, you don't want to believe them. I think like as an American, like you want to believe in American exceptionalism that it won't get so bad here. Um, um, but, and actually I admittedly, I wasn't using the words autocracy. So like, you know, a leader who has like, concentrated power and expects unquestioning obedience. And I wasn't using the words authoritarianism early in the project. Um, cause it just seemed hyperbolic. It seemed like, oh, this is the U S government. Um, but the more you kind of watch what unfolded, it was like, oh my gosh, this is what Levitsky and Zablat were warning us about. Um, and I think for the public, the culminating moment should have been the January 6th insurrection, right? And for some reason, that hasn't seemed to bother as many people as I would have thought. 
While Kaczynskis interviewed individuals who might be expected to resist, Amanda Rutherford took a broader survey-based look at turnover and attitudes over several administrations before Trump. Let's turn to my interview with Rutherford, starting with some more traditional concerns of public administration research. Can agencies retain morale and staff? So what were the biggest findings and takeaways from your new article on federal vacancies? Great question. So Taha and I, in our research, uh, we focus on several years of federal vacancies in the U.S. It does not include um, our current, uh, the Biden administration or Trump administration. But what we find is essentially where you have a vacancy at the the top of the agency, um, potentially in kind of the second uh, highest appointment. Though we actually see um, an inclination that employees tend to report higher levels of job satisfaction and they actually may be less likely to leave the organization. Um, In other words, that they would be more likely to be retained in their organization. The vacancies we're looking at are really the the top one or two individuals uh, who are tasked with these agencies. So they're political appointees who would be confirmed by the Senate. And we're looking at essentially how these positions might shape the rest of the agency or the employees in that agency in particular ways. I think we talk a lot about, right, this conversation of, say, careerists in the bureaucracy versus those who are appointed, uh, but we don't necessarily put a lot of kind of teeth to that. And so one way that we've thought about doing this given data that are available is, right, thinking about how could we look at levels of satisfaction, which in some cases indicate how, uh, you know, loosely, Uh, We debate whether that affects how they do their job or what the outcomes of the agency will be. And there's a lot of debate on that, right? But it at least indicates something to us. One, that the the appointees who are put in charge of these agencies um, matter in particular ways that I think, you know, I I find particularly interesting. Um, But also, right, that this is something that, you know, we tend to see vacancies as a as a negative thing, right? That we look at those, we see the numbers, we might worry about them. But in some cases, maybe um, some of the concerns are not necessarily uh, as hard and fast or as founded as we might think that they are when we compare it to something like the private sector, right? And what our norms might be there. Yeah. So every time there's a high level of vacancies, um, like there was in some parts of the Trump administration, we see a bunch of press reports about how this is um, a, a problem. So are you suggesting that there's not much wrong here? Um, or how should we interpret your findings? Sure. Uh, I don't think that we want to say it's not a problem, but I think we're identifying at least one area where we might not have so much to worry about, right? Uh, you know, if we look at vacancies in general, we might point to concerns about, right, are there weaker relationships with other agencies or external groups? Does it lessen the legitimacy of the agency to have an acting head rather than a permanent head, right? If we compared this, Dave Lewis did this very nicely once, to say Fortune 100s, we, it, it feels kind of incomprehensible to say like, they're just gonna have no one at the helm, right? That seems a little unfathomable. Here though, right, given the different types of political scenarios and the environment in the agencies, it's kind of a balancing act, right? Um, do you have lesser legitimacy, but do you now have careerists who maybe feel one layer less of that political pressure, or they feel like they're being pushed in a particular direction to a lower degree? Do they have more freedom to use their expertise and do their job? I don't think we answer all of those questions in this one particular study, 
But I think it's a reminder, right, to say we shouldn't immediately jump to a conclusion that all things about vacancies are negative. And also, what does that mean for how we have started to turn the conversation around vacancies into one that has to do with strategy um, that presidents might utilize in different ways, not necessarily for, right, bettering the job satisfaction of employees, right, but that these are particular levers that we can't just say, well, we're not being kind of strategic about them, or we're just ignoring and assuming that they have these all around negative effects. So how common are these uh, top level vacancies Great and, question. and what are the main reasons they occur? Yeah, I think it depends on the point at which we are in a president's term. Uh, and so many right sources will say, well, let's look at the first 100 days, because in theory, a president could say, right, let's start with a clean slate and let's re- restart all of these appointees. Uh, that rarely happens, right? We know that we might have some need for continuity, but there are about 4,000 key positions um, that a president is really tasked with appointing individuals to those positions. About 1,200 of those are going to be confirmed through the Senate and are kind of the most powerful, right? So we're really only talking about one person of the federal workforce. But when we think about the power these positions have, it's it's quite large. And the degree to which the president appoints these positions relative to other countries is also large, right? So when we say, I think it depends on like what data point do you look at, right? One percent of the federal workforce sounds quite small, um, but the extent of power that these positions have and, and their relative nature compared to other countries is quite large. And so I think when you when you look at the vacancies here, right? Um, Trump appointed individuals slower than the few presidents before him. I think Biden tried to turn that a little bit. But we also see the vacancies, right? Once someone is in a position, it doesn't mean that they're going to stay there. In fact, they turn over really every few years. And so, for example, in the last year of Trump's presidency, right, um, there were, you know, close to 150 positions that did not have anyone named to them. No one was nominated. They were sitting there vacant. If you look at Biden right now, he's under 100 um, in terms of just sitting vacancies. Um, And I don't know if he'll be trying to name anyone to those vacancies in the coming months. But you do see that it's at least less than what they started with. But we're never, you know, getting to where we think we're going to realize zero in terms of everything being full. And what about uh, the level setting for your for your outcomes here? You're looking at job satisfaction. Yeah. Leaving, but are, is there a problem that's that this is high in the federal government? How does it compare yeah. elsewhere? Is there any? So I think there certainly were concerns raised, you know, pandemic and immediate post-pandemic, of kind of declining rates of job satisfaction reported among federal employees, and we can actually chart this given, right, that um, federal agencies run these surveys right through the Office of Personal Management, where we can track this in some ways over time to say, okay, we know. In general, some things about things like job satisfaction or empowerment, you know, 10, 12 years ago, and we can look at how that compares over time through today. And so we did see this kind of immediate dip there, which I think raises some concerns about a few alarms, right, about, you know, we're worried about recruiting to the public sector already. We see that job satisfaction is going down. How do we alleviate that? We also know it varies across these agencies, right? I think it's easy to look at federal agencies and kind of assume they're monolithic, but in fact, they're not. And, you know, I think political scientists like us who study that are aware of that. I think even we sometimes can just be like federal agencies, one box, right? Um, Where we see, you know, the NSF, for example, has one of the highest rates of job satisfaction. It's above 80% among its employees. 
um, compared to other departments like, um, oh, I don't know, Department of State, for example, are very low, right? They get We get down to the 50 percentile in terms of, right? That means like one out of every two employees is reporting that they're either somewhat or very satisfied and uh, reporting their job satisfaction. And so that can really, like, there's some wide variation, I think, there when we look across these different agencies. So as you said, your data predate the, the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, but there's okay. a lot of concerns that were raised uh, around the new Trump administration. So how much of this process do you think changed under Trump? I think Trump more explicitly owned uh, his use of this. I don't think it is necessarily new. Right. So Anne O'Connell's done really great work looking, you know, um, through the last, say, 25, 30 years to show. Right. In many cases, we have one fourth of these positions that are vacant. Right. At any one point in time, they're constantly churning and changing. But I think Trump very much owned it, right? He's kind of known for his quote of saying, right, that having acting appointees gives him more flexibility was the term he used. Whereas I think other presidents weren't quite as explicit. Um, and so it left it a little more in the gray area of how and whether they were utilizing these vacancies in particular ways, or if it was just that it was a challenging process to approach. With Trump, we see, right, that he's very much thinking about, right, his ability to put individuals in those positions for at least short amount of times that kind of go around this nomination and confirmation procedure. And I think given that more explicit recognition, I think that we'll see potentially more widespread use of that. And that's my own opinion personally, by any one party, though the extent to which they explicitly recognize it, you know, will vary. So you use this uh, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and its right. predecessors. Um, so tell us about the kind of literature that has developed from these surveys, um, what kind of picture it's giving us of the bureaucracy and Absolutely. what might be ignored in it. Sure. Uh, so the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and its predecessor versions were never designed for scholarly use. Uh, they weren't designed with saying, okay, how do you how do academics want to study what federal employees are doing? That said, in many cases, not all cases, there are at least some consistencies in questions that are asked, the answer options that are posed to respondents that we have over time. And so it allows us to at least try to think about how to utilize that data for some types of questions. Um, in many cases, the FEVs data have been used to think about both the, the determinants and effects of things like job satisfaction, turnover, um, job empowerment, leadership type, and often connecting that to things like agency performance. You know, there's a lot of discussions about how that's limited, given that it's one survey, and we are concerned about whether we pull all this information from a single survey rather than tie it to external information, right, and, and kind of the biases that could enter um, empirical analyses. Uh, but we do know some, right, many would argue that we can say, okay, if we measure this, we might see that um, employees who fill higher levels of empowerment ultimately perform better. It's still a bit on shaky grounds because um, I, you know, we also know that just because I say that I intend to turn over is not perfectly tied to whether I actually leave the organization. Um, but now we have more and more data over the past even decade where we can say, okay, we can not only measure whether you report your intent to turn over, but now we actually know whether you did leave, at least at the aggregate level. Right. And so we can do a little bit more to be creative in how we utilize the data. And I think that really helped foster the paper that Taha and I put together um, where we said, OK, we have all these conversations. Um, 
that are potentially only growing, particularly during, right, we were writing this during the Trump presidency about vacancy. We have a whole nother set of people who are talking about and at least somewhat concerned about who are we hiring in the federal workforce? Are they set, you know, do they enjoy their jobs? Are we losing out to the private sector? And so we just kind of said, okay, we can think about these data and we can connect them. And it kind of bridges those two conversations. And it certainly doesn't give us all the answers. It may even raise more questions, but um, I think can do so in a way that not only is a good use of data that might give other folks ideas, but can help us to think about both of those um, kind of lines of thoughts together. So I also talked uh, to a researcher about uh, bureaucratic resistance during the Trump administration, um, and they go out of their way to find people who might uh, be uh, misaligned with the Trump administration mm-hmm. or worried about the Trump administration's actions and still find that it's pretty rare that they'll take any action kind of against uh, the the administration. Uh, and even if they do, it's it's pretty I guess, lackluster in emphasis. And one of the reasons is because um, these employees are still highly committed to the goals of their agencies and they kind of don't, they they don't think it's impossible to kind of achieve them regardless of what's going on politically. So, so how well does that fit with, with your findings? Yeah, no, I think, well, the first thing I think of when I hear, you know, this discussion with the the Trump administration is we had a lot of these conversations um, with the Reagan administration as well. And the findings are very similar, right? That employees, particularly of certain professions, it said, you know, I'm here to do to fulfill a particular duty, and and I'm going to do that regardless of some of my personal feelings or or the things that are changing around me. I think another phenomena that we see here is that political change is kind of ingrained in the organizations, where um, for those of us who might work outside of a federal agency, it feels like a it feels like it could be a shock to the system when in fact. It's something that they're really used to because it occurs every few years, potentially. And so um, they're exposed to it over and over again. And they're much more accustomed to it and potentially saying, right, like this might last for a few years, maybe up to eight. um, But ultimately, it's not going to be so long standing. And I think then we when you put that alongside the fact that these individuals are selecting into positions in many cases, in agencies where there's a mission that they do care about, whether that's environmental protection or due process or whatever that may be, right? It allows them to at least have some vision of, right? Some of these changes are not so longstanding as they might appear initially. So at the end of the Trump administration, uh, they uh, tried to pass a reform to make a lot more uh, federal officials yes. um, be directly uh, fireable and appointable um, uh, by the president or presidential appointees. Um, and they, uh, by all accounts, are preparing to, to make this kind of at the beginning of a new uh, potential Trump administration uh, should, mm-hmm. should it occur. Um, right. And that probably would be a lot of the, your survey respondents would be people who would um, new, newly be um, uh, political appointees or, or fireable more directly. So what what problem do you think, how do they see the world um, that has led them to to this? And, and what, what problems do you think they are trying to solve? Uh, do you mean they meaning the like the individual bureaucrats who would be affected by kind of their no no I mean like from the Trump administration perspective oh. what, what are they what are they doing here why why do you think yeah well I mean I think that there's been this is not necessarily new it just hasn't been taken on at the federal level to this degree right where um, there this idea of bureaucrats are too protected and they can kind of underperform or even kind of 
um, subvert what we're asking them to do, and we can't necessarily get rid of them very easily. And we even see states as experimental grounds for this, states like Georgia, Indiana, where I am, right, saying we can make parts of our public employees essentially at will employees and and it hasn't just gone, you know, it's not really been something that's salient right now. Um, and so in a sense, they've been successful in doing that. If we take this to the federal scale, it's simply right, the, the right or the conservative ideology being able to say, right, we, we are wary of these bureaucrats, again, not new news, and we just wanna have the tools to be able to, right, change them and make them at will employees. And there's trade-offs to that, right? You can more easily get rid of, of someone if you want to identify them as poor performing for valid or invalid reasons, but it also takes away some of those political protections where now I would have to be more concerned about how do I align with the party of, of those who are elected, right? Um, and now do I risk, do I have more risk in my, my profession? What does that mean for recruitment into the public sector? There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes I recommend checking out next, all linked on our website. How Bureaucrats Make Good Policy. How Administrative Burdens Undermine Public Programs. Partisan Election Administrators Don't Tip the Scales. The Resistance, Who is Protesting Trump and Are They Changing Public Views? And What Became of Never Trump Republicans? Thanks to Jamie Kaczynskis and Amanda Rutherford for joining me. Please check out Walking the Moral Tightrope and Vacancies Among Appointees in U.S. Federal Agencies, and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.